All right, so as I mentioned, uh, this morning we'll be looking at the perfected kingdom, part one. So we've been um, doing a study in biblical theology, and when I say biblical theology, I mean that we're just seeking to understand the Bible's own theology of the Bible, right? Biblical theology. How does the Bible interpret itself? So we have actually come to uh, the last um, section of our study as we've been going through Von Roberts' God's Big Picture. And so we have this week, and Pastor Ron will finish out next week, and we'll be done. So I hope it's been encouraging for you as it has for us as we've been going through this study. So to today we come to the end of the Bible, the last book, the last few pages of Scripture, the book of Revelation. Before we get into this study, first I want to ask a question. Embrace yourself. You don't have to, it's fine. When you think about the book of Revelation, what is the first thing that comes to mind? Judgment. What else? Destruction. Destruction. What else? Jesus. Rapture. Jesus. <laughs> yes, that, that's right. What's the, the end of the world. What else? Eternal hope. Eternal hope. Come on. What else? The second coming. I'm not sure if that's blasphemous or just funny. <laughs> <laughs> but I see why you would say that. <laughs> What's that? Joy. Amen. Hmm. The least preached book. I think that's probably right. That's probably right. Right. Yeah. True. So for. Oh, nice. The culmination of all things in the beginning of the new Jerusalem. All right. So for those of you who didn't answer, because maybe you were more ashamed of what's, what comes to your mind first, um, was it Satan? Was it uh, the great beast with horns and heads and a tail that's wiping out cities? Was it angels as tall as skyscrapers? pouring out bowls of wrath? Was it maybe this? The seven seals opening vision? I know y'all have seen this before. This is like, when you think of Revelation, that's almost the first thing you think about. Was it this? Right? That, that looks more maybe familiar, right? When we're trying to depict these images. Was it that? This is actually one of my favorites. I typed in Google Revelation, not even the book of Revelation, just Revelation in so much art, just like this, this attempt to depict these visions of and revelation, this, this imagery. And this is, I know for me, this is one of the first things that, that came to mind. For me, as probably for many of you, when I was a boy and read, tried to read Revelation, my thinking about Revelation was informed by the media, um, TV preachers that my mom would, would listen to that really only focused on uh, the judgment, the bowls, the trumpets, 
destruction. It was it was death, 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 blood, death, blood. And then Jesus was in there somewhere just doing something horrible to everybody. That was how I understood Revelation as, as a boy. But I, I, I want us to sort of look at Revelation from maybe another perspective. So in this class, we've been looking at the execution of God's decree as he is securing salvation for the elect. Um, Genesis to Revelation, biblical theology. We've been tracing the progress of redemptive history by focusing our attention on this theme of kingdom. We've been talking about this every week, this kingdom, kingdom, kingdom. And we've been using a sort of uh, phrase or tagline as we think about the kingdom. Does anybody remember what it was? Somebody though, you know Will. What is it, brother? Right. God's people and God's place under God's rule and blessing. As we've been looking at the unfolding of God's plan unfolding for us, um, we're, we're tracing this through the theme of God's people, God's place under God's rule and blessing. So this is the thread we've been seek, following as we seek to understand biblical theology, the Bible's theology of the Bible. Right. So. Let's jump to the first point on your note sheets, the book of Revelation. Dun, dun, dun. (laughs) So when we think about the book of Revelation, we have to remember that the Bible started somewhere and it's headed somewhere. (laughs) I'm going to take that off because it's a little (laughs) distracting. (laughs) Y'all didn't even listen to me. You just look at that. The lady on the beast. (laughs) All right. (laughs) The Bible started somewhere and it's headed somewhere. It's headed towards a conclusion, right? So Revelation is one of the books of scripture that gives us a glimpse into where everything is ultimately headed. So Revelation, as I mentioned, isn't detached from the rest of scripture. It's not a separate canon from the other 65 books. And it's easy for us to view Revelation in this way because it's sort of it's sort of off out of our scope because of all the, the pictures and the visions and the prophecy and all these things. We sort of have it to the side. But the thread of scripture runs from what? Genesis to Revelation, right? We have to be honest, I think, and admit that there is mystery in Revelation. It's one of the most probably debated books, and the content of Revelation is probably the most debated in all of Christendom. Um, I would say that that's probably true. But looking at all of scripture helps us to more clearly interpret this book. And remembering what took place at the beginning of the Bible helps us know what to expect at the end. Right? All of scripture. This is what I mean. What we see in the beginning of the Bible in Genesis gives us a holy anticipation of what to expect at the end. And what do we see at the beginning of the story? You know the story. Adam and Eve disobeys God's command not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. God shows grace to them, but he also pronounces curses on them. The man would toil in his labor. Now, the woman would have to suffer in childbirth, but then God curses the serpent too for his part in the temptation of Adam and Eve. 
He would go on his belly, eat the dust of the ground, and be subject to a promised offspring figure. And we can't forget that even the ground was cursed. Why? The Bible says, because of you, because of Adam. That's important when we consider the eschaton or the consummation of all things. In Genesis 3.15, we have what theologians call the proto-evangelium or the first gospel. Let's read Genesis 3.15. If someone wants to read this for us, have at it. Okay, thank you. So again, what we read in the beginning gives us an anticipation of what to expect at the end. In Genesis 5, I'm sorry, in Genesis, God promises an offspring from the woman who will crush the head of the serpent. What took place in this garden scene, the promise and the curses becomes the theme for the rest of scripture and human history and eschatology. They're not separate. Since Genesis 3, man has been in need of redemption. He has been exiled or cast out of the place of God's special presence, typified in the Garden of Eden. His sin and rebellion against God's rule has been put on display, and he has disqualified himself from experiencing the fullness of God's blessing. So in Genesis, a seed is promised, a seed that will be a righteous representative for God's people that Adam was supposed to be. Right, so there's, there's a connection here. And looking at Christ, we see what Adam was supposed to be. And looking at Adam, we see what Christ will be. By his perfect life and merit, he, Christ, will bring all those who have union with him into right relationship with God. And Revelation 12 shows us that Christ is the fulfillment of the promise in Genesis 3. In verse 5, of Revelation 12, we see the woman has given birth to a child that is to rule all the nations with an iron rod. Revelation 12, verse 5. He is to rule all the nations with an iron rod. This is actually the fulfillment of Micah 5, 3. Micah 5, 3 says, therefore he will give them up until the time when she who is in labor has born a child then the remainder of his brethren will return to the sons of Israel. And this language that we see in Revelation 12.5 of iron rod rule brings us back to Psalm 2. Psalm 2 verse 9. Let me have someone read this for us. He shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. He shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them into pieces. And what is Psalm 2? Psalm 2 is a messianic psalm about the reign of the Lord's anointed. <clears throat> Revelation 12, 4 to 5 talks about this child being caught up to God and to his throne, where soon after Satan is thrown out, there's a celebration in heaven because the enemy has been defeated by Christ. Let me have someone read Revelation 12. Can you see that? Is that big enough? 11, 10, 10, 11 for us. <clears throat> and I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of 
authority of this Christ to come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down. He accuses them day and night before our God. And they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they love not their lives even unto death. Okay, thank you. So I'm trying to make the case that Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of the offspring, the promised seed of Genesis 3, right? Trying to sort of paint this picture that um, all of scripture is tied together and what we see at the end should not surprise us because of what we see at the beginning. More evidence that Christ is the fulfillment of the promised offspring of Genesis 3 is what John says in 1 John 3, 8. The reason the Son of God appeared was to what? Destroy the works of the devil. To destroy the works of the devil. And you should notice something here. That this happened, this destroying of the works of the devil, this happened upon his appearing. Not his second advent, his first advent. The destroying of the works of the devil starts not at the return of Christ, but it started at the earthly life and ministry of Jesus Christ. Paul explains what happened on the cross by saying, he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Colossians 2.15. So the Christian gospel and the doctrine of salvation, soteriology, have everything to do with eschatology. And eschatology has everything to do with the Christian gospel. That's why I said earlier that we shouldn't view the book of Revelation as disconnected from the rest of scripture or Christian doctrine. The Bible is a whole with many human authors, but one divine author with one divine message, okay? Now, in Matthew 19, 28, Jesus speaks of the goal of eschatology. And he speaks of the goal of eschatology as the regeneration. And Acts 3.21, Peter speaks of the goal as the restoration of all things. And Romans 8.21, Paul says it includes the creation set free from its slavery. Eschatology is about bringing creation and mankind to its original destination, its God-intended destination. It's about Satan's purposes of destruction and the victory of God's divine redemptive purposes. Eschatology and revelation brings us to the consummation as it concerns God's decree and Historia Salutis salvation as it's been accomplished throughout redemptive history. It has to do with the gospel and the claims of Christ, uh, God's divine decree executed and carried out. It is God reconciling to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of the cross. So again, when we think about Revelation, and we think about eschatology, we have to think about it with a gospel-centered uh, focus. We can't take it away from the rest of scripture and put it in another category and say, 
Um, everything up until this point seems to be clear and helpful, but this revelation, I don't know. It just seems like the Bible went left field with, with revelation. No, we have to approach it knowing that it's connected to the rest of scripture. What we see in the beginning tells us what to expect at the end. Uh, Dr. Sam Waldron says, biblical prophecy then is not about something other than the gospel of Christ. It has everything to do with Christ's cross, Christ's church, and Christ's coming. If we approach the book of Revelation like hieroglyphics, rather than a book about the reign and rule and victory of our Lord Jesus Christ, then we will deprive ourselves of our own progress and sanctification that comes from reading this book with hopefulness and joy that in the end Christ wins and in him we conquer. That's how we have to approach the book of Revelation. Okay, so let's jump down to the next point on your note sheet. Yes? You said something I think that really bears Right. The whole rest of the story is redemption. The end is basically culmination. And I had said earlier in New Jerusalem. Right. Really, what's going on is you've got God's Eden at the beginning, which is not complete. Right. And it's book ended by God's Eden at the end, right. which is perfected and complete. Right. That's Amen. The story. Amen. Yep. Absolutely. Completely agree. Amen. And we're going to talk about that. Yep. Oh, okay. <laughs> so, thank you, brother. <laughs> I mean, read, read my notes a little bit. All right. So, a throne and a kingdom. Second point on your note sheet. A throne and a kingdom. So the book of Revelation begins with this letters um, from the Lord Jesus to seven historical churches in Asia Minor. He's calling them to stay faithful. Uh, then John is shown this vision. Now turn to Revelation chapter 4, verse 2. Revelation chapter 4, verse 2. <clears throat> Let me have someone read this for us. <clears throat> Thank you. So remember that these first century churches uh, and their, their, their widespread persecution that's happening to the people of God at this time. So they look around and there seems to be no sign of a kingdom of God on earth during their persecution. But whatever it may feel like at that time, whatever it may have felt like for them uh, and for us, we must remember that God is on the throne. The throne in heaven is not unoccupied. <clears throat> when we think about the throne in biblical theology, our minds should, I think, go to the Davidic covenant. In 2 Samuel 7, verses 13 to 17, God promises King David that he will have a son who will sit on the throne forever. And what's interesting is that Luke 1.31 and Matthew 1.1 1, 1 
both confirm <coughs> Jesus Christ as the fulfillment of this prophecy of a forever king. Now, when you think about a throne, picture a throne in your head, um, where is that throne? It's probably not outside of 7-Eleven off the corner of Bumby and Colonial. The throne probably has a context. The throne is a place of authority for a king, one reigning, in a kingdom, right? The throne has a context, it's, it's in a kingdom. The, the coming of the kingdom and biblical thought is central and the kingdom of God and the universal reign of God is seen throughout the scriptures. So the question we can ask or think about concerning the kingdom of God is, does the meaning of uh, the biblical word for kingdom fundamentally, is it about realm or reign? Is it about realm or reign? Is it primarily about sovereign reign or particular sphere? Thinking about the kingdom. Is God's rule essentially about authority or area? Psalm 103.19 says this, the Lord has established his throne in the heavens and his kingdom rules over all. If we interpret kingdom here as God's sovereign rule, we see its extent and absolute authority. Let me have someone read Psalm 145 for us here. They shall speak of the glory of your kingdom and tell of your power to make known to the children of man your mighty deeds and the glorious splendor of your kingdom. Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and your dominion endures throughout all generations. Thank you. So the idea of reign is uh, fundamental the fundamental idea behind uh, kingdom language and scripture. Uh, this, this doesn't mean realm isn't important, uh, but it does mean that realm or sphere of rule is derived from reign and sovereignty and not the other way around. The rule and reign of God should not just be thought of in terms of geography or location. The Lord reigns forever yesterday, today, and forevermore. Now, although the kingdom of God is an ever-present reality, it's also the eschatological goal of history. The coming of the kingdom is future and awaits the return of Christ in glory. But at the same time, the scripture tells us that the coming has already Uh, Sorry, the kingdom has already taken place and the kingdom is a present reality. The New Testament teaches that the kingdom has come in Jesus Christ. So what I'm going to do here for a few minutes is look at the data that scripture provides and then make a few quick observations. So I'm going to sort of jump through these next few points here. We're thinking about the kingdom. Uh, Rome or reign. Um, authority or area. The kingdom of God. One, the defeat of Satan means the presence of the kingdom. Matthew 12, 28 to 29. Let me have someone read this for us. So we're going to go through a few different verses. So 
it just be, yeah, let's, if you want to read it, just have at it. I'm just going to go through them, make a point, and then go through. So Matthew 12, 28, and then 1 John um, 3, 8. I have someone read this for us. But if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods, unless he first binds the strong man? Then indeed he may plunder his house. Yes, please. Thank you. Uh, the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. Again, the defeat of Satan means the presence of the kingdom. Second, the preaching of the kingdom means the presence of the kingdom. Luke 16, 16, and Matthew 11. The law and the prophets were until John. Since then the good news of the kingdom of God is preached, and everyone forces his way into it. Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence, and the violent take by force. For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John, and if you are willing to accept it, he is Elijah who is to come. All right, thank you. Three, the entering of the kingdom means the presence of the kingdom. Matthew 23 and Mark 10. But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces, for you neither enter yourselves nor allow those who would enter to go in. Mark 10, 15. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter. Thank you. <clears throat> For the preaching of the apostles attests to the presence of the kingdom. Colossians 1.13, he has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. And then Hebrews 12.28, therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus let us offer to God accept, acceptable worship with reverence and all. Lastly, the enthronement of the king means the presence of the kingdom. Ephesians 1. And he worked in Christ when he raised from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Okay, thank you. And I'm going to read from Acts chapter 2, not on the screen because it's a longer passage, but I'm going to read from Acts chapter 2, verses 29 to 36. Again, we're thinking about the enthronement of the king means the presence of the kingdom. Acts chapter 2, verses 29 to 36. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet, and knowing that God has sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on the throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. 
being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit. He has poured out uh, this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. <clears throat> now, <clears throat> again, the point there, the defeat of Satan means the presence of the kingdom. The preaching of the kingdom means the presence of the kingdom. The entering of the kingdom means the presence of the kingdom. The preaching of the apostles attesting to the presence of the kingdom means the presence of the kingdom. And the enthronement of the king means the presence of the kingdom. Now, there are many different um, interpretations of these texts and the theology of the present and future kingdom. But I want just to draw out the uh, historic Reformed Baptist understanding of these texts in relation to the kingdom of God and its eschatological implications. So my aim here is to encourage present hope and the consummation of our future redemption. It's already taking place, but it's also a future reality that has been guaranteed and secured by the Holy Spirit as he is plundering the domain of darkness and transferring once captive sinners into the kingdom of the sun. The book of Revelation gives us vivid illustrations with the aim of showing us that what has began in Christ will be brought to its final consummation. Christ's reigning, the defeat of Satan, victory over the church. That is our encouragement, and that is the hope we ought to look to, okay? All right, the last point on your note sheet, interpreting revelation and the gospel of Christ. So in this last section, we'll do an overview of the different approaches to and interpretations of the book of Revelation first. Um, I'm drawing from Cornelius uh, Venema, who summarizes the various views in, I think, a concise way. Um, then we'll close with what I believe are helpful perspectives to keep in mind when reading this book. So first, different approaches to the book of Revelation. Um, the first approach um, that I'll summarize is what's called the futuristic approach. So I'm gonna go through five different approaches rather quickly and then we'll jump into um, our last section. Approaches to the book of Revelation, the futuristic approach. <clears throat> the, fut the futuristic approach to the book of Revelation sees the visions of chapters four to 22 as referring to events that are in the future, events that will take place immediately before Christ's second coming and the end of history. For futurists, most of the events in the visions of Revelation will occur during the first period of tribulation following um, the rapture and the removal of the church from the earth. Next, the preterist approach. The preterist approach uh, comes from the Latin word for, Latin root word for past. This view takes an opposite interpretation of the futurists. 
This approach to the book of Revelation primarily refers to the events that occurred in the past, either in the period prior to the destruction of Jerusalem Temple in AD 70, or in the later Christian centuries leading up to the destruction of the Roman Empire in the fifth century AD. That's the preterist approach. The historicist approach. The historicist approach reads the book of Revelation as visionary symbolization um, of the sequence of events that will occur throughout the course of history of the church, from Christ's first coming until his second coming at the end of the present age. Historicist uh, interpreters of the book usually read its visions as a presentation and chronological order of the most significant developments in the history of redemption. From the time of its writing until the second coming, the millennium, the last judgment, the final state. Next, the idealist approach. The idealist approach is different from the other three approaches in that it's hesitant to identify any particular historical event, institution, or people within the vision of the book of Revelation. This approach views the visions of Revelation as a portrait of the church's struggle throughout the entire period of the first and second coming of Christ. Idealism acknowledges that the book of Revelation was originally written to the early church in its struggle against religious and political persecutions, but it also holds that the letters to the seven churches and the visions in the book reflect circumstances that characterize the entire church age from Christ's first coming until the return at the end of the present age. Lastly, the eclectic approach. You probably didn't know that there were this many different approaches to interpreting <laughs> Revelation, but it is. Uh, the eclectic approach. The eclectic approach interprets the book of Revelation in a way that aims to incorporate the strings of each of the main approaches. So what it sees as strings of each of these approaches, it tries to put them all together in one. The eclectic approach acknowledges that there are elements of truth in the other approaches. Eclecticism has an ability to incorporate the primary emphasis of the other approaches without maybe being as one-sided um, on those other approaches as it can usually be. In the same way, um, this approach has a tendency to ascribe different meanings to the same vision, which means that they can come up with many different interpretations for a passage. Okay, that was technical, but again, we're talking about revelation, and I want to be at least um, lay out the different perspectives there. So that gives us a brief overview of the various uh, more popular approaches to the book of Revelation. Um, now let's consider what I feel will be helpful perspectives to keep in mind when reading this book. And we'll close here. So Dennis Johnson said this, God gave the apocalypse shown to John in order to bless us, to do us good, to convey his grace, to fortify our hearts. And Revelation, God promises his blessing seven times in a symbolic number, symbolically significant number, I should say, uh, to those who hear and hold Revelation's message, to those who die in the Lord, those who stay awake and alert, those who attend to the Lamb's marriage supper, and those who share in the first resurrection, those who wash their robes in the blood of the Lamb. 
As we close, let's think about how reading Revelation and eschatology helps us to progress in sanctification and hope in God as he executes his divine decree. First, Revelation helps Christians see our situation in its true perspective. This is what I mean. Christ's cross looked like the slaughter of a helpless lamb, but it was actually the triumph of Judah's lion. Let's read Revelation 5, 5 to 10. Let's see if I have that. I don't have it. That's okay. <clears throat> Revelation chapter 5, verses 5 to 10. Let me have someone read that for us nice and loud so everybody can hear. And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered, so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures, and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain, with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down before the Lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. They sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain by your blood, you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Amen. Thank you. So when martyrs shed their blood, their enemies seem to conquer. But Revelation 12:11 reminds us that the martyrs actually have victory over Satan through the blood of the lamb and the word of their testimony. Revelation also shows us that our enemy is stronger and more clever than we are. Revelation 12:9 reminds us that the great dragon, the ancient serpent, the devil, and Satan is the deceiver of the whole world. This should humble us. There are so many contemporary Christian songs filled with chants about how Satan can't touch me and how he's no match for me and how I'm going to stump him out, etc. And Christ, <laughs> that's really a song. And Christ seems to be sort of this afterthought, like, I got this, and if I can't handle it, then Christ has my back against Satan. That's not the perspective we should have, which leads me to my next point. Revelation reveals our champion in his true glory. The Bible assures us that the Christian will conquer. They will be victorious over sin, Satan, and the grave. But what does the verse, the first verse of Revelation chapter one say? The revelation of Jesus Christ. The Bible is not primarily about us. <laughs> Revelation is not primarily about us. Christ is the hero in each scene, our triune God. Uh, he is, Christ is Judah's lamb, Judah's lion, who conquered by being slain, redeeming people from all the earth's nations. 
He is worthy of worship from every creature everywhere. He is the captain of heaven's armies riding into battle against his and our enemies. So we ought to sing songs of Christ the conquering king. And as we do that, I think we fade into the background as the trembling peasant who looks to the righteous knight as the conqueror. So our singing, our songs, our worship should reflect this. And in that, we are strengthened as we increase in hope in our triune God. Revelation also encourages us to endure as we suffer. Dennis Johnson again writes, writhing in his death throes in the aftermath of the cross, the dragon escalates his assault against the saints until Christ returns to consummate history. Jesus does not promise a painless escape from this war of the ages. Instead, he promises his presence to the one who is alive forevermore, Revelation 1.18. Revelation 1.18. Lastly, Revelation calls us to stay pure and encourage, encourages us to bear witness. Satan misleads through false teaching. He also misleads through and tempts through material comforts and compromise with paganism and pragmatism in the culture around, around us. As true as it was for the churches at that time, it's true for us now. Um, revelation calls us to keep our hearts and lives pure. And this is fitting for one who will, is waiting the, the lamb. As we strive to be pure, as Christ is pure, we witness to the reality of the resurrection. We proclaim what has already taken place, what has already been accomplished by the suffering servant, the Lamb of God, our righteous knight. In Revelation 1-9, it tells us that John was at Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. The church is symbolized as two witnesses who announce God's word, sealing their testimony with their blood. We may suffer in silence, but we should not be surprised when the suffering comes on account of our witness to the testimony of Jesus Christ. And so, God gave us the book of Revelation, not only to inform our minds, but also to transform how we live. It gives us insight into the realities of our situation, into our enemy, and to our champion, our own identity, and it causes us to patient endurance. As we endure, and as we hope in our triune God, we will progress in sanctification. So again, this book isn't detached from the rest of scripture. It is God's divine decree executed throughout human history as he is uh, calling a people, saving a people to himself through the person work of Christ, by the Holy Spirit who is making them new, transferring them from the domain of darkness and bringing them into the kingdom of his son. So read Revelation and have in mind in your eschatology, Christ as the conquering king, our triune God who's accomplishing salvation for the elect. That's how we should view it. That's how we should read it. And we find encouragement in that way, okay? I'll end there. I know that was a lot, but if you have any 
thoughts or questions, feel free um, to come up afterward, and I'll be happy to talk more about it. <laughs> Let me pray. <laughs> Father, we thank you for your word, which is sufficient for life and godliness. May you continue to sustain our hope in the gospel. Um, as we think about your word and think about redemptive history and scripture and even specifically the book of Revelation, may you um, encourage our hearts to continue to look to you, Lord, to hope in our triune God who has accomplished salvation for us in the person and work of Christ. May you continue to sanctify us by your word, and may you continue to um, prepare our hearts to meet and see our King face to face. Lord, um, bless us now as we are dismissed, and bless us as we hear the word preached this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat>